And we are in our message series on the life of Jesus going through all four of the Gospels in chronological order so that we can see firsthand for ourselves who Jesus was, what he did, what he taught, what he said. We don't want to hear that from anybody else. We want to see it for ourselves in his word, the Bible. Last week, we saw Jesus gloriously transfigured, transformed for a short time into his fully God state in front of Peter, James, and John. Also present, incredibly, were Moses and Elijah making one heck of a guest appearance, and we learned that Jesus is nothing like Moses and Elijah. He's not a prophet. He is the son of God. He's something else completely, and the day is coming for all of us when we will be alone with Jesus, we will have that moment just as Peter, James, and John did. We didn't have time to unpack it more last week, but I alluded to the importance of fasting that came up in our study. And I just put a link at the top of your outline to a blog post we did on fasting that walks you through some practical steps you can take if you'd like to get fasting as an active discipline in your spiritual walk. This week, Jesus is going to share with the disciples what it means to be a disciple. We've mentioned before that the words of Jesus found at the end of Matthew's gospel that are known as the Great Commission say this, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, disciples of all the nations. And we've discussed before how the Lord didn't say go and make believers. He didn't say go and get as many people to pray this prayer as possible. He said make disciples, disciplined, committed followers of Jesus. That's what Jesus wants. That's what he asked his other disciples to go and do is make more disciples. And today, Jesus is going to share some things that we just need to know up front if we're going to be his disciples. So if you're here today and you would say, that's me, I want to be a disciple of Jesus, then this is for you. And if you're here today and you're not a disciple of Jesus, I think you're going to find by the end of our study today that Jesus lays out the best way to live, period. And hopefully by the end of the study, you'll find yourself saying, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. At this point in Jesus' ministry and life, he has set his face toward Jerusalem. He's in northern Israel, and his one-way journey toward Jerusalem has now begun, toward his appointment and his date with destiny, his death on the cross. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was traveling through the northern part of Israel known as Galilee in secret. He wasn't on a tour. He didn't want anyone to know he was there. He's traveling with his disciples toward Jerusalem, and he's teaching his disciples as he heads toward Jerusalem. And that's important because as you read the gospels, you'll find that Jesus really speaks to two audiences. He speaks to the crowd, and then he speaks to the disciples in private. And he says some much more in-depth things to the disciples because he's saying, here are some things you can only even understand if you have the desire to be a disciple. If you have the desire to follow me, then this is for you. If you want to just know more about me and who I am, I'll share that with the crowd. If you want to know what it means to follow me, if you're all in, Here's a teaching for you. So this is a conversation for disciples, for those who want to seriously follow Jesus, which hopefully describes you and I. Also remember that as we studied last week, the last thing that had happened was Jesus has just cast the demon out of a boy who was suicidal and rolling on the ground and foaming at the mouth. And in Luke's gospel, it says everyone was amazed by what Jesus did. While they were all marveling at the miracle, it says Jesus grabs his disciples and begins to speak to them about his death. His strange response, and that's because Jesus didn't come to the earth to do miracles. 
Jesus didn't come to the earth to give nice teachings that could be pasted on coffee mugs about how to be a better person and a nice person. Jesus came to the earth for one specific purpose. You cannot separate the man from his mission. He came to the earth to die on the cross for your sin and mine. That was the entire purpose of the coming of Jesus. Let's jump in. Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. It says, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, And I just want to say something about the them right at the beginning. Jesus is addressing his disciples as a group. There is nowhere in the Gospels where it says, Jesus said to them, and then Jesus went and found Steve. Because Steve didn't believe that organized religion was the best way to acquire information and walk with Jesus. Steve believed that the disciples had become too organized and lost their natural, organic magic that they had at first. Jesus, reluctantly admitting that Steve's criticisms of his ministry were correct, discipled Steve in private one-on-one. That never happens in the Gospels, ever. The disciples are always together as a group. And that's because real disciples seek a place where they can be discipled. I know this sounds simple, but I can't tell you how many people I've had in my life come up to me and say, hey, Jeff, will you mentor me? I want you to be a spiritual mentor. And nobody understands that if you want to be mentored by anyone, you have to drive that relationship. The mentor doesn't call you and say, hey, remember, we got to meet this week. You have to seek that. You have to pursue that. You have to drive that. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to seek discipleship. You can't just sit around and say, well, I wanted to be a disciple. I stayed in my house for a week, and the Lord didn't send anyone to knock on the door. You have to seek discipleship. Write this down. Real disciples seek discipleship. Real disciples seek discipleship. And I feel like the Lord has really blessed us in this church. I'm I'm astounded. For a small group, I look around the room most Sundays, and I see people who I want to be more like. I want to be a better husband like him. I want to be a better father like him. I want to be as passionate about Jesus as he is or she is. And that tells me we've got the same goal. We're we're aiming for the same thing. We're headed for the same destination. And that's Jesus. That's who I want to be around, is other people who are pursuing Jesus. You'll notice the disciples always gather, then they scatter, and then they gather again. They meet together to grow in the faith, be encouraged in the faith, be taught, discuss, pray together, worship, be strengthened all so that they can scatter to their jobs, their families, their schools, their individual lives as missionaries for Jesus. And then they gather again for the same reason they did at first. Both are vital to the Christian life. You gather to be discipled. You scatter to be a disciple. Goes on and it says, Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. You may have noticed Jesus is starting to consistently talk to his disciples about his coming death and resurrection, specifically that he will rise on the third day. He puts a number on it. But as we'll find out when we get there, none of them got it. But Luke's gospel adds this little tidbit. It tells us the reason they didn't get this is because it was hidden from them. 
It was hidden from them. So we can't be too harsh on them because this was supernaturally hidden from them. The Father didn't allow them to fully grasp and perceive what Jesus was talking about, and they were too scared to ask him more questions. So why was it hidden from them? Well, the truth is we don't know. But I'll offer an opinion, and you can decide what you think of it. Perhaps the reason it was hidden from them was to provide even greater evidence that the resurrection of Jesus was real. The testimony of the disciples is one of the great evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ being true. I encourage you to do your own research into this. Read passages like this and you'll find that the disciples didn't get it. Read what they did after Jesus died. None of them are waiting in the garden. Only two days to go, only one to go. You know what they're doing? At first, they're all hiding. Then they just go back to their jobs. They go back to their lives. Like nothing ever happened, and they're, they're trying to figure out what, what the heck was the last three years? What was that all about? None of them are expecting that Jesus is actually going to rise from the dead. None of them. We know that from what they did. And then something happens that causes them to go from that, from hiding when Jesus is killed, to standing up in front of the same crowd that killed Jesus and declaring he's the son of God, he's risen from the dead, and all but one of them will be martyred, killed in excruciating ways for that testimony. What in the world happened to the cowards, to the men hiding, to the men who went back to their jobs? You know, even if you say, well, they faked the whole thing, they stole the body, men may do that. Men may create a lie, but men will not die for the lie that they created. When someone's about to saw you in half lengthways, you will say, you know what? We stole the body. We faked the whole thing. You won't die like that for a lie for no reason. Look at the disciples. If you said they faked it, why? None of them became rich. All of their lives were challenging and difficult. They were nearly all killed in horrific ways. John, who wasn't, still got boiled in oil. There was nothing for them to gain in this world. Nothing. The only explanation for the complete reversal of the disciples' behavior is that Jesus rose from the dead. And seeing that, they said, I can't deny it. I've seen him with my own eyes. The testimony of the disciples, one of the great evidences for the resurrection, and perhaps the reason why it was concealed from them, because if it wasn't concealed from them, we wouldn't have that testimony. Verse 24, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Peter said, yes. So as they enter Capernaum, the men who collect the temple tax come up to the disciples. The temple tax was part of the Old Testament law. It's outlined in Exodus 30. Every man 20 years old and up was to pay a half shekel of silver whenever they visited the temple to make an atoning sacrifice. So to make a sacrifice or to, to pray for forgiveness from their sins. And the Lord says in Exodus 30, if you don't pay that, then a plague might come upon you. So this was very theologically controversial even back then because people would say, well, is the Lord saying that you can buy your salvation? But as we know from the Bible, nobody was saved through the law. Nobody, because nobody could keep the law fully. So what's going on? Well, the Lord was using this specific law to teach his people and all people across the centuries that salvation and the forgiveness of sin has a price. There is a cost. You know, for you and I, it is the free gift of salvation. For Jesus, it was the costliest purchase 
ever made. It was made with his body, his blood, and his very life. It's free for us, but don't ever think salvation didn't cost anything. It cost everything. And Jesus is using this as a small hint that salvation costs something. Goes on and it says, and when he had come into the house, so Peter goes from these guys to the house where Jesus is, Jesus anticipated him, underline anticipated him. I love that word anticipated because as we'll see in the next few verses, Jesus already knew what Peter was gonna come ask him about. He knew that he had been asked about the temple tax. This is just cool to me as a guy who's interested in the paranormal and things like that. This is like scientifically what we would call remote viewing. Jesus is in one place and he's able to see somehow an event that took place somewhere completely out of sight and out of earshot. He saw the whole thing happen. When Peter shows up, he already knows the deal. That's just flat out awesome, first of all. But secondly, it's encouraging to me because before you or I ever come to the Lord, before we begin to petition him, before we begin to ask him, before we begin to pray, as as we struggle to form our words, what's the right way to ask? He has anticipated us. He has anticipated us. Just before Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he tells them this. Just remember, before I teach you how to pray, remember this one thing. Before we even discuss prayer, this is what you've got to remember if you want to pray comfortably. Your father knows the things you have need of before you even ask him. And then Jesus teaches them how to pray. You see what he does there? He he takes all the pressure off and he says, he has anticipated you. He knows what you need. He's never responding to your prayer with, I'm having a hard time following you. You speak in sort of a clumsy way and your your tenses and verbs are a little bit muddled. He has anticipated you. He knows what you're going to ask before you even ask it. Well, then why does he want you to ask? Because it's just about the relationship. He's just waiting for you to open the conversation. He says, I know what you need, but I just want to talk with you. I love it when you come to me. I love it when we fellowship together. Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? Simon Peter. From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter says, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. So Peter comes fumbling into Jesus, flustered, and is about to say, Jesus, people are saying that you're not paying the temple tax. We've got a perception issue out there. What are we going to do? This is the unspoken part of the conversation. Jesus says, Peter, don't you remember what you said just a few days ago? Who am I, Peter? And Peter replies, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, right, the son of the living God. You're talking about my father's house. You think the son has to pay taxes to go to his own father? No. Right, and because I'm the son of God, this doesn't apply to me. Jesus is stopping to address this because he's saying, Peter, you've already forgotten. I'm the son of God. Think about that. That's the point Jesus wants to make. And then I love this. Once he's made that point, just so we're clear, Peter, I'm the son of God, right? That's my father's house. Once he's made that point, then he says, nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. A wild command here, because Peter is a manly fisherman who deals with nets, Peter's not a fisherman who goes out with his door of the explorer pole and catches one fish at a time. He he uses nets. These things are heavy. The guy's going to be a muscular dude. And so Jesus is saying, no, no, no. Grab your bamboo pole and your line and go sit by the water. And you're going to catch a fish. 
A lot of commentators point out Jesus said do that because if he'd said throw in the net, he could have bought up a whole bunch of fish and, and people would say, well, it's not really a miracle because the numbers say there's going to be some junk when you pull up a bunch of stuff from the bottom of the ocean. So maybe there's a coin there. But Jesus says, no, cast out your pole. You'll catch one fish inside the mouth of that one fish will be the exact amount of money to pay the tax for you and for me. But this whole thing is a good lesson for us from Jesus. Jesus is saying, listen, from heaven's perspective, we don't need to do this. I'm the son of the father. You're with me in this case as my guest. We don't need to pay this. And he says, but us paying this is not going to be sinning. We're not going to be blaspheming my father. It's not going to be heretical. So let's just do this to not create a fuss. That's, that's a good thing to remember when we're visiting other churches or dealing with other customs or things like that. If it's not blasphemous, if it's not heretical, just sometimes do it to make life go easier. That's a good lesson. And so how do you think Jesus' instructions affected Peter? So, so can you imagine? This is Jesus making the point, Peter, whatever I ask you to do, I can make the resources appear like that. I can make them appear from anywhere. I'm never shorthanded. I'm never underfunded. I'm never limited by resources. If I call you to do something, I'll provide everything you need to do it, even from the mouth of the fish. You know, that's the blessing of living in obedience to the Lord. There's going to be times when you're called to places and situations that are overwhelming to you, that you don't have the resources for. In those places, in those moments, the secret to peace is being able to honestly say, Lord, Everything I do in my life, I'm, I'm just trying to be where you want me to be, do what you want me to do. So when I run into an issue, Lord, I, I'm only here because I'm being obedient to you. So it's literally your problem. It's, it's not my problem. And God is good with that. God doesn't go, what do you mean it's my problem? He says, now you get it. Now you're starting to understand. It's not your problem. You walk in obedience to me, all these things are my problem. What does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness all these things will be added to you. That's the blessing of living in obedience to the Lord because when you don't live in obedience to the Lord, you're in a situation that the Lord didn't call you to be in, a job that you took in disobedience to him, you run into a problem, you got a problem. The Lord may be gracious. The Lord may say, hey, it's time for you to learn that it's better to trust me. But when you're living your life in obedience to the Lord, you get to say, God, we got a problem here. And the Lord says, yep, I got it. I got it. Notice that Jesus only provides enough money for him and Peter to pay the temple tax. You know why that is? Peter and Jesus are the only people who are 20 years or older. All of the other disciples are under the age of 20. As we've mentioned, they're probably 12, 13, 14 at this time. As we just keep going into chapter 18, it's the same situation, the same story. It just keeps flowing. Mark's gospel tells us that the disciples have been having an argument while they're walking about who's going to be the greatest in heaven, which is a hilariously petty conversation to have after the transfiguration, Moses, Elijah, Jesus in glory, and Jesus exercising a demonically possessed boy. What great theological conversation are you going to have on the road? Who's the greatest in heaven? Which one of us is going to be most important? No question it would have been Peter who opened the conversation, right? No question, guys. I'm, I'm just saying. Um, any of you walked on water? Oh, sorry, that was me. Uh, one of three on the Mount of Transfiguration? That was me. The one who recognized Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God? Oh, sorry, yes, that's me too. Greatest in heaven, no question. 
no, 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 it's, it's me, it's me. Maybe John never got over this, and that's why he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved in his gospel. He's like, I get the last word, Peter, forever. The one who Jesus loved. Deal with that. So they're having this argument, and that's where we pick this up. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, don't miss this, because the point of what's about to happen here is not Jesus loves children. We know that's true, but that's not the point of what's going to happen here. In verses 2 through 5, Jesus is going to use a child to answer the question the disciples have asked. Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Listen to what Jesus says. Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and, and then underline, become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So get this, not only do you have to be converted and become like a little child to be great in heaven, you can't even enter the kingdom of heaven if you don't become converted and become as a little child. Verse four, he keeps speaking and says, therefore whoever humbles, underline humbles himself as this little child is the greatest, underline greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, for he who is least among you will be great. When Jesus is talking about humbling yourself, he's not talking about having the view of yourself, I'm horrible, I'm useless, I'm really worthless. Whenever anybody asks you how you're doing, I'm doing terrible because I'm scum of the earth, I'm horrible. He's not talking about a low, low view of yourself. Can I tell you why that's the opposite of humility? Because you're still completely self-absorbed. Everything is about you. Everything is about your shortcomings, your issues, your limitations, your worthlessness. You are 100% absorbed with yourself. That's not humility at all. So what is the opposite of that? What is true humility? In Mark's gospel, I think I put it on your outline, Jesus answers that question by telling his disciples, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Servant of all, underline that on your outlines if it's there. So what is humility? Humility is viewing the purpose of your existence. Don't, don't miss this. True humility is viewing the purpose of your existence as being to serve others. The purpose God puts you on the earth for. It's an attitude of service, not an attitude of serve us. So write this down. Disciples view themselves as the servant of all. Disciples view themselves as the servant of all. So how do we know for sure that's what Jesus is saying? Maybe you're not convinced. Well, because Jesus himself is the precedent for this idea. In Mark 10, Jesus said, and whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. True disciples of Jesus gladly view themselves as servants, gladly. Not, oh, if this is what I have to do to get into heaven, then fine. True disciples of Jesus desire to be great in the eyes of God and don't really care if they're considered great in the eyes of men. So whoever you are, wherever you are, Jesus is calling you to a life of kingdom greatness. He's calling you to live as the servant of of all. And here's what I've learned about myself. Maybe you can identify with me. I'm, 
I'm overwhelmed by God's love for me. I'm awed by the cross and by salvation and by grace. So I, I cry out to God, I'll go anywhere for you. I'll do whatever you want. I'll do anything. And I'm thinking like China, you know, go convert ISIS soldiers. And I'm thinking of all these dramatic things. What I find is that the Lord responds to that desire in me and in most other believers by saying, you know, here's what I want you to do. I want you to serve your wife. I want you to serve your children. I want you to serve the brothers and sisters in the faith who I've put around you, make up your church. I want you to serve your employer. I want you to serve your neighbors. I want you to serve, serve, serve. And I still struggle to wrap my head around the reality that to God, that's what greatness looks like because it is so opposite to the world that we live in. So yes, we are all capable of greatness because we're all capable of living our lives as servants of Jesus, serving whoever he calls us to. Can you imagine the disciples' response when Jesus says this? Hey, this is what it means to be great. Be like a kid. Be the servant of all. I did not see that coming. There was nobody teaching anything like this. Nobody had ever taught anything like this. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Serve. Just serve. Serve. I do need to share one important thing that Paul teaches us about service. It's in Galatians 6, and I put it on your outline. Paul wrote this. I'm going to have you underline a couple of things. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, and then underline especially to those who are of the household of faith. So here's what Paul is saying. He's saying you should do good, serve others as God gives you opportunities to do that. However, the priority is the household of faith, the church, the people who make up the church. So imagine if a wife has been asking her husband to paint the living room for months. Husband doesn't do it. But then he goes out and paints somebody else's living room because they're not Christians and we need to serve them. Is him serving that family a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing. Is him serving that family ahead of his own wife a bad thing? Yes, it is. It's also about the stupidest thing a man could do, but <laughs> that usually doesn't stop us. It is the wrong thing for him to do that. It is the wrong thing for him to serve them before his own wife. It's wrong. It's not right for him to lecture his wife that they're not believers and we need to show them Jesus. That's not right. Serve your wife first. And Paul penned this verse because he understood that our human tendency, whenever Jesus gives us a command, is to do everything we can to take control of it and pick and choose how we obey that. We say, oh, great, that's good. So I can pick and choose when I want to serve. And when anyone says, am I serving? I can say, yeah, I do this over here. Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Make sure that you understand what Jesus is saying. He's saying, serve as I give you those opportunities, just like James wrote, the good works prepared in advance that you might walk in them. Do those things, yes. But remember this, when Jesus said, by this will all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. Who's the one another? Other disciples. Other disciples. One of the most misunderstood, mistaught verses in the whole Bible People use it and say, we should just be walking around doing random kind things for people everywhere, and then we're obeying that commandment. That's not at all what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, people are looking at you as a people, as a church. They're looking at the way you treat each other. 
And when they see a radical love between people who have no reason to care about each other other than the gospel, when they see that, people across races, ages, ethnic backgrounds, political backgrounds, when they see those people come together with only Jesus in common, loving each other in a radical, sacrificial way, they go, whoa. Jesus says, that's how they'll know that you're my disciples. Not because you buy coffee for everybody at the office. Not a bad thing, but not what Jesus is talking about. He's not saying, if you just do random nice things, everyone will know you're my disciples. How do we know that doesn't work? Because Christians aren't the only ones who do nice things. We didn't get the copyright on random acts of kindness. There's an infinite number of seemingly pious people who film themselves doing nice things and put the videos on YouTube. <laughs> Jesus is talking about kindness among believers first as a priority because when you don't do that, that is like having a blood brother who is in need and you go meet the need of a complete stranger while your own brother is still in need. So what does this mean practically for us here? Syrian refugees. I want to be firm on this. Don't you dare send money to a secular charity before you send money to Christians who are being persecuted in Syria. Don't you dare do that. You help the family first. You help the family first. Man, don't you dare go and pour your money into a secular charity when there are Christians suffering somewhere else. I have no problem when they say, do you want to give a dollar to this? I say, no, I've got my things that I support. Widows and orphans in Israel, Christians around the world, Compassion International, focus. Why? Because we got to take care of the family first. And there is family in need. There's family in need. Don't give a ride to your coworker to work, but not give a ride to a brother or sister who needs help getting to church. Take care of the family first. It's not okay to say, you know what? My service to children is I coach a sports team. That's what I do. That's my service to children. Don't say that while your church still needs volunteers to teach children that their Father in Heaven loves them. You take care of the family first. I'm a musician, so I just say, I see this all the time. People so busy with their own recreational band. They're not going to go professional. They've been playing at the same bar for 10 years. They're so busy with that, they don't have time to come and play guitar at church or sing at church. Take care of the household of faith first. You can do all these things in addition to serving the household of faith and your brothers and sisters. But Paul is saying you cannot do them in place of. You've got to take care of your brothers and sisters in the faith first. It is a knock on the church when we don't do that. It exposes the fact that we're full of it when we say we're brothers and sisters, but we have more love for people who don't love the Lord than we do for our brothers and sisters who do love the Lord saying, do good. When you have the chance, do it. Make sure you take care of the family first. Take care of the family first. That's why for me, I'm so intentional about not painting the stranger's living room or my living room. I'm very careful about that. So, <laughs> so the action steps here are, are very, very simple. And I just say, if you're not serving in your church in some way, even once a month, you should check the box on the back of the connection card and just say, man, I, I want to serve. I want to help take care of a need wherever it is in this church, and we'll, we'll make it happen. We have several areas where we need more team members. And when you encounter a need within the body, and you know that you could serve them in some way, if you can meet that need, do it. 
Do it. The Lord brought it across your path for a reason. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. In our family, we have a a family cleaning day, and every child has their zone that they're responsible for. It can be an absolute circus, but they have their zone that they're responsible for. And we have after-meal cleanup jobs as well. And when the kids protest or complain, you know what the reason is we give them for doing it? You're doing this because you're part of the family. And you're doing this because this is what it means to be part of the family. And you're doing it because you're grateful and you appreciate that God put you in this family. Okay, Dad. (laughs) For the church to thrive, everybody who's in the family has to do their part. And I want to debunk a bit of a myth here because there's this rhetoric that's been flying around the church for about a decade. And the rhetoric says, you know, there's great news because your passions will perfectly line up with a place of service in the church. And it's taught if you're not completely passionate about an area of service, then you don't have to do it because that's not where the Lord wants you to serve. I'm not buying that for a second, and I'll tell you why. I do things for my wife and my family all the time that I don't feel like doing, that I don't want to do, and I am not passionate about doing. Do you know why I do them? Because I am passionate about my wife. And I am passionate about my family. Nobody is passionate about unloading the church truck on a really hot or rainy day. Nobody's like, oh, yes, man, I couldn't wait. You're lying, Wes. Put your hand down. (laughs) Nobody's passionate about changing a stinky diaper or having a child wipe snot on your sweater. Nobody's passionate. Oh, when they wipe that snot on my sweater, I just had that feeling, this is what I'm meant to be doing. No, that's nobody. But you know what the disciples of Jesus are passionate about? They're passionate about the church of Jesus and the people of Jesus. If there's not a perfect place for you to serve right now at New Hope, serve anyway. Serve anyway. Do it because you're not passionate about the task, but you're passionate about God's people. So write this down. Disciples prioritize the needs of the church, the people, over the needs of non-believers. Disciples prioritize the needs of the church the people who make up the church over the needs of non-believers. And I know that can seem harsh, but that's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Bible teaches. So Jesus says in verse four, therefore whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what are the childlike characteristics that Jesus is trying to shine a light on for his disciples as he's holding this child in front of them? What's present in a child but missing in an adult that Jesus wants from his disciples. Well, let's make a list of some observations here. First, a genuine and sincere faith. A genuine and sincere faith. We know you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven without faith. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe he loves you, that he saved you, you can't be a part of his family. A little child has that glorious blind faith. If you've always taken care of them, they don't doubt that you'll continue to do that. I've never had one of my kids when they were three years old come up to me and say, Dad! Where are we going to get dinner? I just realized we don't live on a farm. We don't own any cattle or sheep. We're not growing any crops outside. What are we going to do for dinner? None of my kids at the age of three have ever done that. It's just been simple trust and faith that the Father is good and will continue to make a way. Jesus said, you need to be like that. You need to just trust that your heavenly Father loves you and will take care of you. Secondly, little children obey those they trust, most of the time. The simplest explanation is what just happened in the text. That's the best example. Jesus called the child, and the child did what? The child came. 
Write this down, just obedience. It's simple, right? But man, do we make that complicated. Jesus says, hey, come here. We hum and haw and ponder and deliberate because heaven forbid we do something just because we know God asked us to. We're like, nobody's gonna buy that. I need a better reason. I need more. How about Jesus said, come here. So I went and that's why I'm here. Jesus says, trust that there's a reason for everything I ask you to do. And obey even when you don't understand it. Children are sensitive to evil and sin. They have a sensitivity to sin. They instinctively know when something's not right, even if they're the one doing what's not right. What I love about really young kids is they're so young, they can't even make up a justification for their sin. Why did you do that? You know, like that's, that's as far as it goes. Uh, 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 they just know. They know that it was wrong and they're caught. And Jesus would say to us, hey, keep your spiritual sensitivity. Live a life where sin bothers you. Don't live a life where you become so desensitized to sin. You don't even feel it anymore. How about this one? Little kids tell everyone the things that they love and the people that they love. We stop doing that as soon as we realize not everybody loves the people we love or the things we love. Jesus says, when's the last time you told anyone about me just because you're the thing you love most? Little kids are so proud of their dads. They, they boast to people about their dad. My dad can beat up your dad. And when it comes to the Lord, you know, it's all true. He really can beat up their dad. You can't possibly overstate his greatness. Jesus says what Paul and David echo in the scriptures, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. So write this down. What's that childlike characteristic here? A publicly expressed love for the Father. A publicly expressed love for the Father. No shame. No shame. So proud of their dad. Little children crave intimacy with their father. Just a simple touch, a hug. And we all know that when our dad encourages us or shares with us that he's proud of us, it means more coming from him than anybody else. Even if as a guy you don't like that reality, you're powerless to change it. You're just wired that way. If you gave the average man a choice between a trophy or his father saying, I'm proud of you, even to this day, every adult man would choose the latter. Would choose the latter. Jesus says, hey, like a child, get your self-esteem from your heavenly father. Get your self-worth from what he says about you, not what anybody else says about you. We see a desire in a child for the father's approval. And then lastly, a little child's relationship is not built on intellectual understanding. Oh, you know, I have a great relationship with my dad because now we're intellectual equals. It's not built on commonality. Now we like the same things, we're into the same stuff. A little child's relationship with his dad is built on the blood relationship. He's my dad. He's my dad. A son's ultimate confidence in his relationship with his father is supposed to be the fact that Above and beyond everything, they're the same blood. And that's always going to matter more than anything else. I remember when my first kid was born having that feeling of, you know, no matter what they do in their life, they'll always be my kid. If they turn out to be the worst person in the world and spend their life in prison, I will visit them in prison because they will still be my kid. They're my kid. Nothing can change that. That's why I'm so glad that the way God describes our relationship with us is he says, you're my sons and daughters. It's not a reversible relationship. 
We're in a blood relationship with him. David talked about simple childlike faith in Psalm 131, and he said, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor my eyes lofty, neither do I concern myself with great matters, nor with things too profound for me. Surely I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. If you haven't made a note of this yet, we see in a child a confidence in the blood relationship, a confidence in the blood relationship. You know, age and experience in this world make us cynical, and in the Western Christian church, we tend to trade intellectualism for passion and zeal in the faith. At a testimony meeting, a a multimillionaire stood up and shared the story. When I was 18 years old, I heard a missionary who came to my church speak about the need in Africa. Having recently given my heart to Jesus, I was touched deeply and reached into my pocket for the only $5 I had to my name. That was the turning point in my walk with God, and he has blessed me ever since. The whole congregation went, oh, ah until one elderly sister in the back row stood up and said, I dare you to do it again. I dare you to do it again. And that story makes us chuckle because we know there's no way he would do it again. But I don't think Jesus chuckles over those things. I think he grieves over those things. You and I were never meant to grow out of the zeal and the passion we had for Jesus during our early years of knowing him. That was never intended to be a juvenile phase that we grow out of. We're never meant to mature past trusting him wholeheartedly. Jesus puts a child in front of the disciples and he says, getting back to this is what the life of a disciple is all about. He doesn't grab one of the scribes or the smartest guy he can find and say, this is what you need to become. He grabs a child. Whatever you used to do when you were passionate about Jesus in the early years, do it again. Do it again. The way you used to trust and just believe, trust again. The way you trusted him when you had almost nothing, trust him now that you have more. Don't change that. And at this point in the discussion, the disciples go a little bit off topic. And because we're going through the whole life of Jesus, we're just going to touch on this real quick. Then we'll get back to the main flow of things. This bit of dialogue is recorded in Mark and Luke's Gospels, but not Matthew's. If you want to flip there, if you're curious, I'm reading from Mark 9, 38. It says, now John answered him saying, teacher, you can tell they're really not absorbing anything Jesus says because they just changed the subject. Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So the disciples come across someone who's doing ministry in the name of Jesus, and apparently it's working. This person's exercising a demon in the name of Jesus in a seemingly legit way, but he's not part of the official group of Jesus' disciples. So the disciples tell the guy, you're not approved to do this. You're not approved. Pope Peter says you can't do it. Jesus' response is, you know, guys, if he's really following me, you'll be able to tell by, by the way he speaks. And just a heads up, I know this might blow your mind, but there will be others who will follow me in the coming years. Like a lot. There's going to be more than the 12 of you. What? What? And Jesus goes on and says, listen, 
anyone who does something as simple as handing out a cup of water in my name and says, I'm doing this because Jesus loves you. He says, there's a reward for that person, even if they're from a different flavor of the faith from you. Here's what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying anything and everything is cool as long as it's done in my name. I'm cool with everything. That's not what he's saying. Jesus is telling us, hey guys, there's gonna be lots of different movements, different denominations, different flavors of the faith. And if they speak truthfully about who I am, then they're part of the family. We're on the same side. Even if their model of ministry misses the mark on some points, even if their idea of having communion with Jesus is swinging from the chandeliers, they might be your crazy cousin, but they're still part of the family. They still love Jesus. Their version of a smoke machine might be waving incense all over the place, but you know, if they love Jesus, if they speak truthfully about me, they're still part of the family, and there's a reward for them for the good things they do. That's a good thing to remember. It's a good thing for me to remember as well. So now we cut back to Jesus talking to his disciples about what it means to be great, using a little child as a metaphor and an example. We're back in Matthew. Jesus is going to encourage us to have his heart for children. And Jesus is going to encourage us by appealing to our love. And in case that doesn't work, then he'll appeal to our fear. So understand this. The child that Jesus is using to talk, using as an example, represents children, but it also represents disciples of Jesus, anyone who wants to follow Jesus. So verse 5, Jesus says, Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Strong words from Mr. Peace, Love, and Happiness. Appealing to love, Jesus encourages us to remember that, hey, when you love and bless children, when you love and bless other believers, you're blessing him. You're loving and blessing him. He says, you got to view it that way. Jesus says that's how he views it. When it comes to non-believers, I'd give this advice. Remember that the Lord is working on them. Remember that the Lord is pulling out all the stops to open their heart and bring them to him. I would suggest that we should treat non-believers accordingly, and this might be helpful. Imagine, I was thinking about this, that every non-believer you meet is having a conversation with Jesus in their soul right now, and they're encountering you, another Christian. And so the question is, while Jesus is working on their heart, while the Holy Spirit is doing his best to soften their heart and open their eyes, and they encounter someone whose eyes have supposedly been opened, Is the way you interact with them going to help the conversation the Holy Spirit is having with them? Or is it going to hinder the conversation you're going to have with them? This is the reason why I don't believe in Christian bumper stickers. I don't think the average Christian is able to preserve their witness while driving. Better to take the fish off your car than have it on and throw somebody the finger while you cut them off on the bypass, okay? It's not helping the conversation with Jesus. So now... Appealing to fear, Jesus explains to us that we have a duty to represent the Lord accurately to children, but we have that same duty to represent him accurately to other disciples. The Jews were never and have never been a seafaring people. They fished in the Sea of Galilee, but never on the open ocean. They feared the open ocean. So it would have been terrifying to them when Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. 
When it comes to children, Jesus is saying, don't lie to them about who I am. Don't deceive them. Don't distort the truth. But equally, when it comes to other disciples, other people who are trying to follow Jesus, Jesus is saying, don't take someone who has a simple faith, someone who is at peace, just believing that what I say is true, just trusting my words. Don't take that person and set up stumbling blocks for them by over-intellectualizing the faith. When they say, I found this in the word and I believe it, don't say, well, we're not sure what parts of the word are really from God and which are just the opinions of the writers, so I would be careful. Here are seven books that you should read before you have an opinion about whether or not you can believe the Bible. Jesus says, hey, listen, you're taking a child who had a childlike faith and you are setting up obstacles, stopping them from having a childlike faith. Jesus is not all right. You're filling them with doubts and questions where there was once certainty and trust. You're teaching them that some sins may be permissible because the Bible's not accurate. Jesus says, don't do that. And if you do, heaven help you. That's what the Bible calls wolf behavior. And you can do your own study on the word wolf in the Bible. You'll find out that God hates wolves. This warning from Jesus is why it matters so much that we counsel not only our children, but each other from the word of God and not our own opinions. You know why I cling to the word of God when I teach? Because heaven forbid I misrepresent the Lord to you. Heaven forbid, God takes that so seriously. This is why it's such a serious thing to tell someone, I believe the Lord is saying this to you. Are you sure? Because you just name dropped God. You better be sure. This is why false doctrine can't be tolerated in the church. Does Jesus sound serious here? You bet he sounds serious. What you're seeing here is a father's heart for his children. If, if you're a parent, you know this is true. You love my kids, I will love you. You mess with my kids, I will destroy you. The Father's heart, man, when we were reading through the tribulation in Revelation, those seven years, you know what's so scary about that? Because Jesus and the Father have stored up all of their wrath towards people who have hurt and killed the sons and daughters of the Father God. He stored up all that wrath. The tribulation is where he dishes it out. That's what makes the tribulation so scary. If you're a parent, you know the level of anger you're capable of if anybody messes with your kid. Now imagine the way people have messed with God's kids and all that coming out at one time. Praise Jesus for the rapture. I'm so glad for that. This is why the church must view simple faith and trust in Jesus as the highest form of faith, not the lowest, the highest form. Jesus is telling us that the simple trust of a child in a good father is the goal for all of us. That's what we're supposed to be striving for. Not, not to make our faith more and more complicated, but to rather always be moving towards a simpler, cleaner, purer, more complete trust in our heavenly father. For those of you who serve in our children's ministry, thank you. I, I know you get it. And I would encourage you to consider if the Lord would have you serve once a month in our children's ministry, if you're not doing that yet, because Jesus says, whoever receives one little child in my name receives me. Jesus loves children. He values children. I'm going to say a couple of interesting things about that just before we're done. And then he says in verse 7, woe to the world because of offenses, for offenses must come, 
but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. The first woe is a lamentation. The second one is a condemnation. Jesus is saying, listen, people are going to lead my children astray, but make sure you're not one of them. Because if you are one of them, there is great woe coming your way. Now, I want to encourage you to remember the context and remember that these things are simply a flowing conversation. They're all connected to what it means to live as a disciple. And more specifically, right now the emphasis is on not doing anything to cause anybody else to stumble. Jesus is about to speak using something called hyperbole. Hyperbole is an exaggerated claim not meant to be taken literally. How do we know that's going to be the case here? Well, because in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus clearly taught us that what causes us to sin is the sin in our hearts, not any external factors. And even in Matthew 15, Jesus says, but those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So we should all be clear. Jesus has taught before sin comes from the heart, not external factors. We always use scripture to interpret scripture. So in the case of what we're about to read, Jesus is talking about the seriousness of sin and how seriously we should deal with sin in our own lives. How seriously should we deal with it? Speaking hyperbolically, verse 8. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. So let's unpack this a bit. And let's start by being honest. If we took this literally... Most of us would be dead by now because you can't just keep chopping things off forever. Most of us wouldn't be able to get to church. If we took this literally, every teenage boy would have to chop off something that would make multi-generational Christianity a biological impossibility. However, Jesus is making this point. Write this down. Disciples deal ruthlessly with their own sin. Disciples deal ruthlessly with their own sin. If I were to preach... We need to deal ruthlessly with sin. Most of you would agree. And most of you, like me, would immediately think of somebody else's sin or the sins of our society. The last thing you and I would think of is ourselves. Amen, you gotta deal ruthlessly with sin yourself. What? Oh, I wouldn't have put my fist up if I would known you were gonna end that way. Jesus is saying you gotta deal ruthlessly with your own sin. Remember what he said in Matthew 7, the favorite verse that people love to pull out of context? And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye and then here's the big part. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus isn't saying if you ever confront anyone about their sin, you're a hypocrite. Jesus is saying, hey, deal ruthlessly with your own sin so that you can confront others about their sin without being a hypocrite. You can't help anyone if you don't deal with your own sin first. So practically, what does this mean? Write this down. Disciples do whatever it takes to free themselves from the grip of specific sins on their life. Disciples do whatever it takes to free themselves from the grip of specific sins on their life. I say specific sins because you can't just free yourself from all sin. 
can't do that yet. If you're struggling with a specific sin repeatedly, crying out to Jesus hasn't helped. You just keep doing it. What do you need to do? Well, according to Jesus, you need to eliminate the things that empower that sin in your life. You need to eliminate your points of access to that sin in your life. You need to cut off the things in your life that feed that sin. You're not going to stop being an alcoholic while you have a fully stocked liquor cabinet, right? You're not setting yourself up to succeed. You're not gonna conquer gossip when that's all you and your friends do when you get together. You're not gonna conquer it as long as you keep getting together with the same people. You're not gonna conquer a pornography addiction while you have unmonitored access to it all over your life. You're not going to stop sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend while you continue to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend. These are really common sense things, but we are so good at lying to ourselves. If certain people consistently lead you to sin, you'll need to cut them out of your life. If having cable TV or even the internet causes you to sin repeatedly, you might need to cut it out of your life. If your job causes you to sin consistently, you might need to change jobs. Jesus is telling us, hey, disciples are ruthless about freeing themselves from addictive sin in their life. We need to adjust our perspective of what repentance is. Repentance is forsaking a sin. It's turning away from it, forsaking it and doing whatever it takes to make sure it doesn't happen again. If you've repented of a sin that's had a grip on your life and you've changed nothing in your life, you have not repented. Repentance is not a magical prayer that you pray. Repentance isn't something that's earned once you reach the point of tears. Repentance is marked by the turning away, the forsaking of something. Don't lie to yourself. Sin is serious, serious business. If you've repented of a sin that's had you in its grasp, you need to be able to articulate. You need to be able to point to specific things you've done as action steps to free yourself from the grip of that sin in your life. So if you've repented of a sin that's had a grip on you recently, can you point to anything you've done, any change you've made in your life to protect yourself from falling back into that sin? If not, I encourage you to consider whether you've really repented. Good intentions are not enough. And the belief that your willpower will suffice is horribly misguided. None of us are that strong. I'll end with this. Jesus now talks specifically about little children and he says something profound in verse 10. He says, take heed that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. Here's what's cool about that. The concept of guardian angels is biblical. This is the verse right here. Jesus is telling us right here, every single child has an angel or angels that are standing before God right now assigned to them. Children and possibly all believers, possibly every person has guardian angels. Not only that, here's what's amazing about this. This is applied to all children. And the implication, and there's other places in scripture that point to this, is that all children are saved. In other words, there is an age of accountability. We know from multiple places in Scripture, every person will be judged according to the revelation they've received. So seemingly the case is that for children, there is an age of an accountability where they become responsible for that. But all children are 
saved, seemingly. I don't have a better way to say it. I know it's theologically problematic, but I encourage you to look into that on your own. And the implications of this are really cool for one moment. Think about what's going to happen when the rapture happens. It's not just going to be all believers who leave. It's most likely going to be all children as well are going to leave the face of the earth in one moment. I don't have a theology for this part, but I just got to think there will be some people who are children in heaven because I think God just loves kids. He loves being around kids. And if you haven't figured it out yet, the sound of children playing happily is the greatest sound there is on the earth right now. Man, it is just amazing. It's the sound of heaven as far as I'm concerned, even though in our house it lasts for like two seconds. But those, those two seconds are precious before somebody screams. Those are precious two seconds. It's going to be amazing. Saying this in conclusion, ask yourself this. How are you doing at viewing yourself as a servant? Or are you like me, like, hey, I've been a servant. Now it's somebody else's turn to serve me because this is a reciprocal thing. Jesus doesn't mention anything about that. He just says serve, then follow that up with some serving, and then top it off with a little bit of serving on the end. Maybe some serving for dessert. Serve, serve, serve. View yourself as a servant. You know, we only get bitter about having to serve other people when we think we shouldn't have to do it, right? You don't get bitter when you're like, man, I'm just doing what I'm made to do. Serving my family, serving my spouse, serving my boss. This is what I'm put on the earth to do, to bring glory to God by doing this. Then, then we're fine. We only get bitter when we feel like we're not getting the acknowledgement we deserve. And if that's you, then the Lord would say, hey, hey, just remember, I'm your father. Worry about what I think of you. Worry about what I'm saying to you. Don't worry about what anybody else thinks. We all have the capacity to be great in the kingdom of God. And then secondly, dealing ruthlessly with our own sin. Ruthlessly. If there's an area where you're in bondage to sin right now, we just ask the Holy Spirit, show me what needs to change. You may know what needs to change. Pray for the strength then to change it. But good intentions, willpower, are not enough. You have to take concrete steps to bring about change, to forsake a sin. Let me pray for you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much that you want us to live free. God, you want us to not live in bondage to guilt or shame or, or any sin, but to live free. And Lord, we believe that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you can light the way. You can guide our steps. You can free us and make a way out of any situation, however deep we've managed to get ourselves into it. Father, I pray for the strength to act on what you're illuminating right now. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make it clear for all of us if there's anything we need to do as a step to forsake a sin. And Jesus, I pray we would simply trust you, that we would get back to the point of believing what you say because we know who you are that we would become more like children, resting in our Father's goodness, confident in our Father's care, worrying about nothing. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. 
Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.